Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. You are listening to the Mother of All Talk Shows podcast with George Galloway. If I have to start from nothing today, or work for the government or some charity, I will give exactly the same. There is no trick other than hard work, creativity, care, and recognizing that duty is more important than love. I was tortured and beaten up, sentenced to death as a spy. The booming voice of Robert Maxwell. A media monster, a bully, a crook. A robber baron whose mysterious death at sea sank his publishing empire. From billionaire to bankrupt, his life is a roller coaster story. From poverty to parliament and self proclaimed war hero to fraudster on an industrial scale. 30 years after he died, the Maxwell name is back in the news. This time, his daughter Ghislaine, for sex crimes with her former boyfriend, Jeffrey Epstein. In this series, the story you're about to hear has never been told before in this way. In 1984, George Galloway was physically attacked by Robert Maxwell while filming at BBC Television Centre in London. He was a giant. I mean, he was very tall, uh, but he was also, by then, enormously fat, which meant that it looked like a, a grizzly bear uh, advancing towards me and punches me with these giant fists, like sides of ham, right in the solar plexus, so hard that I literally bent double. And when I straightened up again, I, I literally had tears in my eyes. These accounts will shock you to the core, including how Maxwell used his lawyers to muzzle the media over his involvement in supplying sophisticated weapons to Israel. And how George used parliamentary privilege to allow newspapers to report the allegations, which infuriated Maxwell, driving him to desperate measures for revenge. Every one of his papers, the Daily Mirror, then following the Sunday Mirror, the Sunday People, the Daily Record, then a few days later, the Sunday Mail in Scotland, even the European, which he then owned, all pissed over Galloway. Asking the questions, Ron Mackay. His pension, along with thousands of others, was stolen by the man dubbed 
the bouncing check. You'll hear how he met Bob Maxwell as a journalist and experienced his ruthless and divisive methods firsthand. I, I, I can't describe what it was like. And every night, presumably, when he had a drink in him, he would boom over the tannoy about the the, 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 the cretins, the fools, the, the people who were opposing his methods and salvation of the newspaper. And of course, he didn't come up. But the majority of the workforce believed that he would take it over and their jobs would be secure. But of course he didn't, he just disappeared. But first, let's start at the beginning. George picks up the story now of that infamous moment he met Bob Maxwell for the first time in a TV studio green room. Actually, my war with Robert Maxwell was uh, violent metaphorically throughout, but you're right. The first time I met him, it was physically violent. Uh, I mean, I'd known of him for a long time and had a poor view of him for a long time. He was a Labour MP in 1966 to 70, and uh, I, I viewed him as a, as a monster. But then in 1984, uh, in the middle of the miners' strike, uh, the great miners' strike, which lasted an entire year, one of the biggest industrial disputes ever uh, in the world. And I was an honorary member of the National Union of Mine Workers. I was active every day in the strike. Suddenly I get the call uh, in 1984 to be on what was then the BBC's flagship programme, question time uh, every Thursday night. I think a couple of million people at least tuned in to uh, question time. Certainly anecdotally, uh, people would talk about it uh, every week. It was a water cooler type show. Then it's a pale shadow of itself now, but I got the call to appear on question time. It was my very first appearance there. I was not an MP. Uh, but I was by then living and working in London. I got the call to be on. I was sufficiently pleased to have been invited. I didn't actually ask who else was on the show. Uh, so I turned up at the Shepherd's Bush uh, Theatre, uh, BBC Television uh, Theatre. I'm not sure if it's in Wood Lane. That certainly rings a, a bell a little. Anyway, I turned up there. I'm shown into the green room where some grandees are gathered around the bow-tied Robin Day, who, uh, for younger viewers and listeners, was the big television personality on the BBC at that time, a uh, slightly eccentric, upper-class Englishman. I see him. I see some grandees around him. Mrs. Thatcher's uh, uh, minister, cabinet minister, Lord Young, who was a big figure in the 1980s. Sure. Sure. Uh, Polly Toynbee, the grand dame still going. Uh, of centrist politics and still going. In fact, she and I are the only uh, ones of this collection that are still going. Um, and I come in to go and make myself known to 
Robin Day, when I spot a man wearing a white jacket, though he didn't wear that on the show, he changed before the show, but wearing a white jacket, and I see immediately that it's Robert Maxwell advancing towards me. Now, again, for those that didn't know Maxwell, he was a giant. I mean, he was very tall, uh, but he was also by then enormously fat, which meant that it looked like a, a grizzly bear uh, advancing towards me. And he booms because he never spoke, he boomed. So. Ah, Mr. Galway, Sikh. Mr. Galway, the PLO man and punches me with these giant fists, like sides of ham, <laughs> right in the solar plexus, so hard that I literally bent double. And when I straightened up again, I, I literally had tears in my eyes. I was speechless, not least because I was breathless, uh, but speechless that such a thing could happen in the green room of the BBC just prior to their flagship program. To my astonishment, nobody else said anything, though all of them had seen it. Nobody intervened. No. That's the, the history, the story of Robert Maxwell, isn't it? Uh, it, it is actually, in a way. Uh, it certainly took the breath away from many people, as well as other things. Uh, but his violence, prior to uh, an important television broadcast, with the establishment saying nothing, you're right, is a metaphor for the Robert Maxwell story. So that was the beginning of my war with Robert Maxwell. As I say, it never got physically violent again, but it was bloody nonetheless. Did he say anything after that? Did anybody try and broker no, a peace? Uh, literally, no one said a word. And therefore, I'm now standing in this company with tears in my eyes. I'm, by the way, uh, exactly 30 years old at the time in my first big television broadcast, uh, you know, daunting enough without that beginning. As it happened, when we got onto the show and started filming, the miners' strike dominated the show. At one point, Maxwell threatened uh, or called for the government to threaten uh, with shooting the miners on strike, the picketers. Uh, he said, we, we, we may have to resort to shooting them. All the while saying he was the man to solve this strike, he uh, punted himself as the proprietor of the then mighty Daily Mirror, not so much now, uh, he was going to solve this strike, but he was so het up in the course of the cut and thrust of the show that he actually said that we needed to threaten with shooting the British mine workers. Did anything happen in the green room afterwards? Did he stay? Did you talk to uh, him? He stayed, uh, but I didn't because he was there. Uh, so uh, I remember being in makeup with uh, Lord Young, not sure if he's still alive, but I was in makeup with Lord Young, and it was left to me to say to Young, well, that was uh, uh, an extraordinary introduction uh, from uh, 
at Maxwell. And he replied, oh, yes, he didn't even get your name right. He thought it was a joke. Uh, and of course, he didn't get my name right, but that was the least of the offence. Your next encounter with Maxwell came later than that. Yeah, um, I should explain that from 1983, uh, for a period of about 10 years, I was working for the satirical British magazine, Private Eye. I wasn't on the staff, but I was a paid uh, writer uh, for the paper, and Private Eye had played a magnificent role in goading and exposing the monster that was Robert Maxwell. Yeah, they were first to call him the bouncing check. The bouncing check, coming as he did from Czechoslovakia. Uh, in, uh, in, in he was the 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 bouncing check for them always, which turned out again to have been extraordinarily prescient because he bounced many checks, including your own pension <laughs> uh, check. Maybe we'll come on to that later. But so uh, from the moment that he struck me that blow, I got into the fight against Robert Maxwell through Private Eye with greater vigor, as you can imagine. Uh, I was constantly looking for stories, chipping in bits of information, and Private Eye conducted a magnificent guerrilla action against Robert Maxwell right up until the end. Uh, so the next set-piece battle, if you like, I should explain that I had come to London from Scotland in 1983 as the head of an aid agency, an aid agency that was founded by the late Harold Wilson, the Labour Prime Minister in the 1960s and 70s. So it was very closely identified with the Labour movement, the party and the unions and so on. So I'm now uh, living in London, working for Private Eye, trying to uh, get my own back on Robert Maxwell, in the public interest, of course. Um, and at that time, we had reached agreement with Neil Kinnock's office. Neil Kinnock was the leader of the Labour Party at that time, from 1983 until 1992. Uh, and his chief of staff was a man called Dr. John Reed, uh, a one-time communist, hardline communist, transformed into war minister for Tony Blair later. But at that time, he was the chief of staff of Neil Kinnock. I knew him well. I'd known him when he was a communist, never mind chief of staff to the Labour leader. And I had good relations with him. So I was working out the modalities of a trip to Africa for Neil Kinnock so that he could learn about development issues, about the political, military situation, the Horn of Africa, for example, in Ethiopia. And we were going to fund this trip. And that was a big deal for us. Uh, but it turned out not to be a big deal for him because once plans had been laid, I was going to be traveling with him. Once plans had been laid extensively, intensively, John Reed called me up one day and said, 
we won't need your money anymore because Bob Maxwell is going to pay for the whole trip. I was crestfallen, of course. It was an opportunity lost for us in terms of building our brand and our position, cementing our position as, as it were, the development arm of the Labour side of politics in Britain. Uh, but of course, I immediately saw that it was a private eye story. So I passed the story on to Private Eye, who duly published it, adding uh, the extraneous detail, not a dishonorable detail, and I'm certain not an untruthful detail, but crucially a detail that could not be proved into the story. So I wrote up the story and in the Private Eye office, it was added that Bob Maxwell had done this in order to obtain a peerage. Now, I'm perfectly sure that he did. He would have <laughs> always wanted a peerage, uh, but we, crucially, could not prove that. He said he, he had done it for entirely altruistic reasons, because of his love of the poor Africans. Um, and well, so of, of when this story he was, appeared, he sued. Of course, and he was the most litigious man going. He yeah. was issuing writs every week. Yeah, it, it's difficult to overstate that point um, because, again, back in the 1980s, not only was London the libel capital of the world, which it probably still is, mm -hmm. but crucially, damages were astronomical. I mean, it was nothing actually to win a million, two million, three million at 1980s prices in one of these libel cases. So people routinely uh, sued uh, and it was uh, kind of, you know, an, a lottery. If you won, you really won uh, big. Uh, but he was the king of litigants. Mm. You know, he, he terrorized everyone into not speaking against him for fear of litigation. That's probably why the establishment flunkies were all silent when they saw him punching me in the stomach. Uh, people had gotten used to not speaking out about Robert Maxwell because he was A, powerful, and B, extraordinarily litigious. So there's now the private eye didn't back down. Maxwell didn't back down. It ends up in the high court in what was, for the time, one of the biggest and most widely noticed, publicized libel actions of the era, and there had been many. In it, Maxwell deployed to the ultimate all of his ruthless mendacity. I mean, it was a performance uh, to be uh, savored. Uh, he, he, he had long lied about his own life, and in particular, the tear-jerking parts of his own life, and I still hear them repeated now in mitigation of Ghislaine Maxwell, for example, that he had uh, he'd been sentenced to death by the Nazi occupiers of his uh, homeland at the age of 16, that the French ambassador had intervened to save his life so the Nazis sent him to another court and he overpowered 
either four or three or two or one guard who had one leg or one arm. The story kept changing. And he was handcuffed, but a gypsy under a bridge. A gypsy under a bridge broke his handcuffs open and he managed to make his yeah. way to the uh, bath. All of that was utter invention, but he deployed it in the court. And he Steve, appeared, did he? he? He appeared at length, and it was uh, the origin of the private eye story, with uh, a private eye phrase, which I still love, use, takes onion from pocket <laughs> in handkerchief, puts it to the nose, and tears inevitably follow. And he wept in the dock, most powerfully uh, in, and effectively. But here's the point. I was by then not just the head of an aid agency, but a Labour candidate in the forthcoming election in 1987. And Neil Kinnock was in the frame in this libel case. So it was potentially very damaging to me for the origin of this story to be revealed. And true to journalistic and noble tradition, the editor. Uh, Richard Ingrams refused to divulge my name. Actually, by whole means of other moves, it was quite clear that it was me, but he never meant he never revealed my name. And thus, my relationship with Neil Kinnock, hitherto very warm, to the point that he invited me to stay in his home in Ealing when I was looking for a house in London, was destroyed. Uh, he never spoke to me again after that case. But because my name wasn't revealed, he couldn't remove me as a Labour candidate. But at one point, Richard Ingrams was threatened with imprisonment if he did not reveal my name. And like the true English gentleman that he is, he steadfastly refused to do so, even on pain of going to prison. So Maxwell won that case. Richard Ingrams gave me a signed copy of the front page uh, to Deep McThroat, <laughs> signed Richard Ingrams. So he didn't, Richard didn't hold it against me. I mean, he could hardly, it was a good story and I was accurate in what I had written. Um, but this meant that our war against Robert Maxwell was really on now. Uh, the I ran a, a, a public appeal to pay its legal costs, which was very successful. I think we raised at least what we uh, were cost uh, in, the, in the case. But it meant that all of us were more determined than ever to get our own back on Robert Maxwell. All this time, by the way, he had been on a rake's progress including stealing your pension, buying the Scottish Daily News, buying the Scottish Daily Record. There was a strike of the journalists there. I was stood on the picket line. He put up barbed wire around the uh, Scottish Daily Record. I remember well standing against that barbed wire. He became more and more and more monstrous. Yeah, uh, and then the day came, which I'm sure you'll come to when I got my big opportunity. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. 
You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Maxwell the Monster. Before we continue, please take a moment to rate this podcast and leave a review. We'd be very grateful. Thank you. This is a series delving deep into the past of a man who stole hundreds of millions of pounds from banks and pension funds to satisfy his insatiable desire to keep an opulent lifestyle of private jets, helicopters and football clubs. You said, what is my secret? I will let you and your viewers know what it is. I'm not attached to property. Consequently, losing or gaining it means nothing to me. Maxwell always claimed he escaped the Nazis and a likely death sentence before fleeing to Britain. But how much of that phenomenal story is true? Time to pick it apart with George Galloway and Ron Mackay for episode two of Maxwell the Monster. I mean, what we know for a fact is he did get the military cross. But what's generally not known is that he killed, shot down in cold blood, German surrendered officers and also executed the mayor of a town which had harboured Nazi soldiers. Well, I mean, I, I, I can't vouch... Uh, for the execution of unarmed uh, prisoners, though, of course, I know the story. I think we should grant him at least this. He was uh, a Jew from Central Europe. Millions of Jews had been massacred, industrially massacred by the Nazis. So if he did, then I think I could understand why he did. Uh, I might have executed Nazi officers myself, to be perfectly frank. Uh, the bestiality of of the Nazis uh, is impossible to overstate. But uh, I think it's fair to say uh, that he fought uh, bravely as a very young person when he eventually did join uh, the armed resistance, though the history of how he got to that is almost certainly completely invented, we can say that there's enough evidence to say that he had fought bravely. Uh, of course, his name was not Robert Maxwell, as, the, as no. it will be obvious. No. In fact, he had several aliases yeah. before I... 
he became Robert Maxwell. I think he was Ivan du Maurier at that du time. Du Maurier was his most famous yeah. uh, nom de plume, but he yeah. had others. Yes, he did. Uh, and he posed as French, he posed as English. And I heard him say on Desert Island Discs with Michael Parkinson, I re-listened to it quite recently, uh, that he arrived in England not speaking a word of English with the fleeing French forces. And he was taught English, he said, by a pretty girl in the back of a sweet shop. And within six to eight weeks, he said, he spoke English as well as he did now, he said. That cannot be true, but he did speak English with a real Churchillian boom. And he says that's because he used to listen to Churchill on the radio, even when he couldn't understand a word that he was saying. That's right. That's right. He credits Churchill yeah. as well, yeah. teaching him teaching English. him English. Yeah. yeah. There's no doubt that he, he was a he was a linguist and he picked up languages very yeah. quickly. I mean, he he claimed to speak nine languages, which yeah. may be true, but he, I don't think it's true. But he certainly was multilingual. Certainly was. He, he invented uh, that nine languages uh, along with so many other things. It was hard to keep up with the lies of Robert mm. Maxwell. You may say that uh, industrialized lying uh, has run through like a leet motif. Uh, the whole Maxwell dynasty, maybe we'll get time to come to yeah. that. Uh, but he, as a person from uh, a remote part of what became Czechoslovakia and what had been earlier part of Poland and so on, uh, Ruthenia, it was known as. Mm. Uh, he undoubtedly could speak several Central European languages. Um, he fought with the French and picked up some French, and he, of course, not only fought with the British, but made his home in Britain. Let's go back then to your next set piece. With well, uh, all of this happened with such speed that is difficult to credit that it actually happened now. Seymour Hirsch, the Pulitzer Prize winning American journalist, had written a book about Robert Maxwell and about the Daily Mirror and its then foreign editor and its role in uh, intelligence matters, in its relationship to the Mossad in Israel, its uh, arms dealing, its, crucially for me, its role in betraying the whereabouts of Mordechai Vanunu, the brave Israeli Jewish whistleblower who had revealed to the world the existence of more than 200 Israeli nuclear weapons in the Negev which had long been suspected, but no one who'd actually ever been there and taken pictures and made detailed drawings had ever emerged before. Uh, Hirsch wrote this book, and Maxwell took out legal injunctions against everyone from Hirsch to the publisher, to the distributor, and even to the retailers. Even John Menzies was injuncted 
was a big bookstore, big, big bookseller at the time. They were all, all booksellers were injuncted against selling this book. So what to do? Well, one Saturday night, I had a very small flat in Battersea, uh, on Battersea Rise. Through my front door came an envelope, anonymously, hand-delivered on a Saturday night about 11 o'clock. I opened a brown envelope, I opened it, and inside was a chapter from Seymour Hersh's book. No covering note. The chapter revealed all the things I've just uh, adumbrated. As I said, the most important one to me being Vanunu. It alleged that Vanunu had first offered this story to the Daily Mirror, which had a big circulation, had a Jewish owner in Robert Maxwell, was something of a campaigning paper, not so much by then, but had in the 60s and 70s been a campaigning paper. So poor Vanunu thought, I'll take this to the Daily Mirror. And Hersh's book alleged that Maxwell had brought Vanunu in and had uh, appeared to be ready to publish and be most interested. Uh, but instead, according to Hirsch, had betrayed Vanunu's whereabouts to the Mossad. Vanunu was then honey-trapped by a blonde Israeli agent who went by the name of Cindy in Leicester Square at a funfair. They ended up back in Cindy's hotel room and Vanunu was never seen again for more than 20 years because he was, and this is not alleged, this is a fact, he was drugged, he was flown to Italy in a box in the hold, he was flown from Italy to Israel, he went on trial with his jaws wired together like Hannibal Lecter in Silence of the Lambs so that he couldn't speak. He wrote on his hand, I think something like kidnapped London or something like that, and held it up against the window of the prison vehicle. Uh, but we never heard from him again. He was held in solitary confinement for almost 20 years, then several more years, and even now he's not free to leave Israel. And of course, definitely not free to tell us anymore. Now, the story was published. Uh, Andrew Neal's Sunday Times published it. It still was a massive story, but perhaps not quite as big in British terms as it would have been if it had appeared in the Daily Mirror. So I've now got all this in my little flat in Battersea, and I'm a member of Parliament. The only person who could not be injuncted or sued by Robert Maxwell was a member of Parliament because then, as now, we are free under what's called parliamentary privilege to say what we like, to table what we like, and none of the words that we say or write can be the subject of legal action. A very important power for a member of parliament to have. 
So on the Monday, I go into the building and I table an early day motion which contains the main allegations made by Hirsch. And I then go in, funnily enough, again to the BBC Centre in White City. I think I was doing the Kilroy programme. Kilroy Silk had a chat show in the morning, panel, audience participation show. And I came out of there and people, people were taking my picture. I thought, what's this all about? I thought I'd made some terrible mistake, <laughs> which I did from time to time back in those days. I get into a taxi. The taxi driver says to me, you're in the news. And I say, what? What is it about? He says, Maxwell. And he throws into the back seat the front page of the Evening Standard, which had published in its entirety, all of my allegations, which they could do with impunity now because they were merely reporting on words that had been stated in Parliament under privilege, under legal protection. I get to the House of Commons, I go to the members' lobby. There was a board where people could leave you telephone messages or other messages. Uh, they were on pink slips. And my box was so full from all around the world uh, that they could put no more messages into it. And the attendant gave me a wad of pink slips like that. And I spent the next few days uh, returning those calls. The next day, Maxwell called in all of his editors. I know this because one of them, a very brave man called David Seymour, then the deputy editor of the Daily Mirror, testified by affidavit in my subsequent legal action that Maxwell said the immortal words, you can hear him booming it, piss all over Galloway, which all of his servile hacks then duly did. It's my only consolation that Maxwell probably stole their pensions. And the next morning, so that's two days later, every one of his papers, the Daily Mirror, then following the Sunday Mirror, the Sunday People, the Daily Record, then a few days later, the Sunday Mail in Scotland, even the European, which he then owned, all pissed over Galloway. And they accused me of being uh, lower than a louse, a scavenger in a dung heap, a friend of Arab terrorists. There was no insult that they spared. So I immediately issued a writ for libel against all of them. And just two weeks later, Robert Maxwell disappeared off his boat. And a couple of days after that, all of the journalists knew that everything I'd said and much more was true about Robert Maxwell. And these newspapers now had no defense, literally no defense in the libel actions. So I picked up rather a lot of money, Ron. <laughs> rather a lot of money. The Galloway wing in the house. Yeah, I mean, it built a wing on my house. It bought me a, 
vintage uh, open-top Mercedes. He even, call me cheeky, I even bought a tranche of Daily Mirror shares with the money because the shares had plummeted <laughs> and I made a tidy profit on them also. So thanks very much, Mr. Maxwell. Well, before we go to the demise of Maxwell, let's go back to the allegations of him being a spy, an agent, a double or even yeah. a treble agent. Yeah. It seems that when he started, he was actually funded when he started Pergamon Press by MI6. Yes. Incredibly. He, through Hambro's bank. Through Hambro. Through Sir Charles Hambro. Yeah. Very closely linked to MI6. He, he was pointed to Hambro. You better be careful, they're only a few hundred yards from us. Yeah. <laughs> just through there and that's just that way. over there. It's that way. <laughs> yes, yeah. that's exactly what happened. He was yeah. introduced to Sir Because Charles. he was able to work and was willing to work behind the Iron Curtain. Sure. See, he was an agent, not just of the British, later the Americans, but of the Soviet Union. He had very close relations with the Soviet Union. He was one of the few... British businessman that was prepared to, uh, um, you know, rub shoulders with, play footy with the Soviet leaders and the leaders of the Eastern European countries then in the Soviet sphere. Uh, so he was a very useful agent for the West at that time. But his principal role in his last years was as an agent for Israel. This was demonstrated amply by the fact that a day after his demise, he was buried with full honours, full state honours, on the Mount of Olives. We both visited his grave to make sure he didn't climb back out of it. Uh, but at the funeral was not just the Israeli prime minister, but all living previous prime minister. The president was the there. The president was there, the head of the Six Mossad. Six serving or former Mossad heads were there. Yeah, yeah. So uh, if, if, if it had been an outlandish claim I had made that he was an agent of Mossad, that claim was amply vindicated just days later in his uh, funeral. And he had the perfect cover, at least to begin with, because Pergamon specialised in scientific documents, yeah. a lot of which, obviously not because of the war, hadn't been published. So he had the perfect excuse to go around the world talking to scientists, passing on information, meeting leaders of countries. Indeed, and he made his first fortune, although he actually ran it so recklessly that the British government held an inquiry into him and banned him from being a director of a public company said he was not a fit and proper person yeah. to be the director of a public company. That, you might thought, should have been a warning to all those banks that lent him hundreds of millions of pounds sure. in subsequent decades, but it wasn't. Um, so, yeah, Pergamon Press, publisher of scientific material from Eastern Europe, from uh, the uh, German period under Nazism, which had never really seen the light of day, sure. built him quite a tidy empire. And then, fatefully, he went into newspapers. Yeah. What was... Um, did you have any, after this libel case and the settlement mm. and the funeral, 
Did you have any other contacts with the Maxwell family? Because subsequently, two of his sons were actually charged with fraud, but were acquitted. But were acquitted, yeah. Yeah. I, my, the paths have crossed so many times, it's almost as if it's fated. Uh, a close friend of mine, I won't egregiously bring up her name, uh, became the live-in partner of one of Maxwell's sons and brought up his children. Uh, he had an enormous number of children. It may have been seven, nine, eight, or nine. 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 So my close friend, former close friend, became the partner of one of Maxwell's sons. And she brought up the grandsons of Robert Maxwell. And I, I saw her for the first time in decades, quite recently, a, a music festival. She's no longer with him, with a, a, an altogether more clean-cut and wholesome chap. Uh, but neither she nor I mentioned the fact that she had brought up Robert Maxwell's grandsons, grandchildren. Um, and she subsequently appeared in Epstein's black book, as did some entirely innocent sure. people like her because of the connection to Ghislaine Maxwell having been the partner of Ghislaine's brother. So uh, there's no blame attached to her uh, from my point of view about being in that black book. But uh, how's that for a coincidence? Um, <clears throat> Truly remarkable. Uh, but I didn't meet the sons, no. Uh, but I took a close interest in the rise and rise of the Maxwell Epstein crime family. Uh, and there's a lot of things that people don't know that I know. Uh, and I now our viewers and listeners know. Epstein for a time, was an arms dealer in London, working in Robert Maxwell's suite of offices at Maxwell House in Holborn in London. Uh, this arms dealer took Epstein under his wing at the behest of Robert Maxwell. A lot of people think Ghislaine Maxwell bumped into Epstein sometime in New York, but in fact, she knew him from the period in which Epstein was working as an arms dealer in the Daily Mirror's headquarters building. Now, I think gone or owned by someone yeah, else. Yes, it's been locked down. Um, Maxwell used to land on his helicopter on its roof. He used yeah. to miturate off the roof of the building, just to show how powerful he was to uh, miturate on the poor uh, down below. Um, and, and Maxwell helped to bankroll, with stolen money, the beginning of uh, Epstein's empire. Because Epstein had been kicked out of Bear Stearns for breaches of the rules. You have to be pretty bad to be kicked out of Bear Stearns for breaching the rules. But Epstein was. That's how he had to go into exile in London. Uh, and he became, as I say, an arms dealer uh, working under the wing of Robert Maxwell and met Ghislaine then. And so after his demise, when Ghislaine Maxwell was looking for a new partner in crime, 
well, Epstein was tailor-made. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Welcome back to Maxwell the Monster, a sorry tale of a man who started with nothing, became a multi-millionaire businessman, and lost it all through greed and arrogance. Robert Maxwell died in 1991, but 30 years later, his name is still making news. His daughter Ghislaine was convicted of sex crimes. You could say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. In this episode, George and Ron discuss the mystery that surrounded Captain Bob's death on his opulent yacht. Did he jump, or was he pushed? Well, what we know is, at the time, he was under great stress, obviously, because he knew it was all coming down within days. He was drinking heavily. He wasn't sleeping properly. He goes up onto the deck of the Lady Ghislaine, in the morning, early morning hours. Yeah. Did he jump? I can't say that he could be pushed. I believe he was pushed, and in that, I agree with Ghislaine Maxwell. She believes he was murdered. She's very clear that he was murdered. Talking of Ghislaine Maxwell, it's time now to delve into the past of this family, which occupied an elevated position in high society for so long. Ron picks up the story of Robert Maxwell's life as a husband and father. Maxwell's family, his original family, there were nine children. He was one of nine children. And he deliberately replicated in his own family nine children. Mm. Um, the eldest died after... Uh, uh, Called Died Michael. just after Ghislaine's birth, actually. Yes. In a car right. accident. A few days later. Yeah. yeah. Well, he lived on for seven years. He did, in a coma. In a coma, yeah. Yeah. But but from him him being the favourite, it switched to her. Yeah. According to the mother, when Ghislaine was three, she put herself in front of her mother and said, Mummy, I exist. And from then on, she was showered in affection and... Yeah, Everything. thoroughly spoiled, yeah. Totally. Uh, and, of course, Maxwell named his ill-fated yacht from which he either fell or was pushed to his death. Uh, he named it after her, the Lady Ghislaine. It had been owned by another arms dealer, uh, Adnan Khashoggi. Yeah. Uh, I think he had called it the Lady Soroya. He had married an English girl called Soraya. Uh, but in any case, he sold it to Maxwell. Yeah, I don't think it was completed. The boat wasn't completed, and he bailed out somehow, and Maxwell came in oh, really? and bought it. Okay. And, of course, again, not a lot of people know this. I'm grateful to you for telling me. 
That boat that was owned by Robert Maxwell, called the Lady Ghislaine, was subsequently owned by the then wife, he's had several since, haven't we all, uh, of, Ro of Rupert Murdoch, who was uh, Maxwell's great rival, but who was always beaten by, Murdoch always beat Maxwell. Even, how powerful as Maxwell was, he always came second to Rupert Murdoch. And the yacht ended up owned by Rupert Murdoch's then wife. Anna was her name, yeah. Anna Murdoch. Yeah, Scottish, I think. Uh, I'm not sure. I think she was. The Lady Ghislaine plays an important part, obviously, in the demise of Maxwell, but the financial demise, because she, Ghislaine, was with Maxwell on the boat when they sailed into Manhattan when he was buying the New York Daily News. That's where it all began to go wrong for exactly. Maxwell. He, he, this was a ludicrous purchase of a failing newspaper in a crowded newspaper market. And he did it out of one-upmanship uh, against uh, Murdoch to say that he'd been the first to become a US mm. newspaper magnate. Uh, and yes, you're right, Ghislaine was given the job, not his wife. By this time, Ghislaine had effectively eclipsed Maxwell's wife. She was his companion at more or less all events. And uh, it was her job to smooth the way uh, through the mob-infested yes. uh, swamps yes. of uh, New York uh, business. And eventually he, he did secure the Daily News and it was then that he launched himself as this larger-than-life American, uh, what was I going to say, potentate, mogul. Mm -hmm. uh, but he, by then, didn't have the money quite to carry that off. No, he was like a juggler, a conjurer spinning plates. He yeah. was moving money from here to there yeah. around his empire. Yeah. Including your pension, yeah. including the pension of and all those who'd bank attacked loans, me. Everything yeah. like that. Yeah. When he bought the, the New York Daily News, he got one of his acolytes to phone up Murdoch to tell him that he had bought, he, Robert Maxwell, had bought. Yeah, he bought. woke Murdoch up in the middle of the yeah. night in Australia. And he, he burst out laughing. That. Yeah. <laughs> he laughed. Yes. As well he might. He had the last laugh. Yeah, he had the last laugh. And he's still going and Maxwell's long gone. Yeah. Um, incidentally, uh, the, the journalists who pissed all over Galloway included one, Alastair Campbell, later uh, the chief propagandist for Tony Blair, including notoriously uh, in the run-up to and through and after uh, the invasion and occupation of Iraq. Campbell, at Maxwell's behest, had been on my case from uh, the libel case. As soon as Maxwell learned that I must be the source of the case that he sued Private Eye over, he set uh, Alistair Campbell on me. And Campbell more or less lived on my doorstep for years. I could hardly turn round without uh, bumping into him. And he 
turned me over, as he said, many, many times. And uh, then when he went to work for Blair, he went to work for Kinnock first, actually, and he was a zealous an acolyte of Robert Maxwell and Neil Kinnock, as he subsequently became of Tony Blair. He, he was a, a power junkie, Alistair Campbell. He affixed himself like a clam to powerful men. Uh, and look where he ended up, or look where millions of people ended up as a result of Alistair Campbell. But the front page in the Daily Mirror pissing all over me. I've got it framed in the wing of my house that Mr. Campbell helped me to buy in my libel winnings. Uh, and there he is, there's his name, his byline, the little known then mm. Alistair Campbell. But of course, all of these hacks who maturated over you within weeks had to do the reverse ferret. They were then belatedly exposing how Maxwell had robbed 763 million, I think, in total. Pounds. Uh, Pounds, So, uh, a billion dollars. Um, Yes, a reverse ferret, we should explain, for those not in the trade. Uh, (laughs) You're, on behalf of one party, you're viciously attacking another, and then when it turns out that the other was right all along, you turn around and, like a ferret, turn on your previous patron. And I laughed and laughed and laughed. I I remember uh, my then parliamentary assistant, when I was awarded this huge sum of money and all costs, because the Mirror Group could not not defend the case, uh, my then parliamentary assistant, a fellow called Gordon MacDougall, said to me, why don't you make a statement that you will not accept your libel winnings until all the mirror group pensioners have been reinst- have been recompensed. And I laughed out loud and he said, will you mull it over? And I replied, consider it mulled. <laughs> <laughs> no, I laughed. Of course, there were a lot of poor people uh, and there were some good people like you who lost their pension. But all these sniveling reptiles that were ready to write anything that Maxwell wanted them to write and attack anyone he wanted them to attack, they all lost their pensions too. And I hope that they went on to enjoy a miserable retirement. You say you referred to it earlier, but this situation where he was able to get vast sums of money from banks with little or no security. How how do you put that down? Well, there's an old saw that if you owe the bank a million pounds, you've got problems. But if you owe the bank a hundred million pounds, the bank has a problem. So many of these banks lent money in order to keep him going so as not to lose the money they'd already lent him. So it was kind of pyramid scheme. Uh, really. Um, And as long as he kept acquiring more and more assets, even if largely through to his own incompetence and and, uh, extravagance, I mean, this was a man way ahead of his time when it came to buying yachts and private jets and luxurious uh, pads and uh, 
paying gigantic salaries to suborn members of the establishment. And at one stage, Sir Peter Jay, who had been uh, the British ambassador to Washington and who was married to the daughter of the Prime Minister of Britain, James Callaghan, somehow ended up working for Robert Maxwell as a factotum to be abused and insulted and browbeaten at huge salary sure. just because he could and to show that he could, to show how great he had become, that he could take uh, someone of Peter Jay's eminence and turn him into an office boy. My lawyer, the late and great, God rest his soul, Oscar Buzelink, who represented me in the beginning of my uh, uh, life in London and who sued successfully many people on my behalf, suddenly told me he could no longer represent me in this case against the Mirror Group because Robert Maxwell had hired him. Oscar had won so many cases against Robert Maxwell that Maxwell thought it would be cheaper to hire him. And hire him he did, and he never did a day's work for Maxwell. He was basically on gardening leave at great, great expense <laughs> just because Maxwell could. And he did it all on stolen money and borrowed money, which turned out to be the same thing, really, because, of course, the banks lost all their money. Uh, because uh, he should never have been lent it in the first place. He had fraudulently borrowed it in the first place. So all of it was stolen money. Uh, and a uh, billion dollars worth of the workers' pensions. I rec recall an old saw, I knew a man, a very fat man, who watered the workers' beer. I always thought that really applied to Maxwell. Might have been written. <laughs> In this case, they didn't just water the workers' beer, he stole it. Yeah. So the question is, isn't it, did he jump or was he pushed? I don't know your own view on that. Well, I, I, what we know is at the time, he was under great stress, obviously, because he knew it was all coming down within days. He was drinking heavily. He wasn't sleeping properly. He goes up onto the deck of the Lady Ghislaine. In the morning, early morning hours. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did he jump? I can't say that he could be pushed. I believe he was pushed, and in that I agree with Ghislaine Maxwell. She believes she, he was murdered. She's very clear that he was murdered. Uh, his widow uh, was adamant that he def definitely didn't commit suicide. No, sure. I, I myself... I don't have evidence one way or another, but knowing Maxwell as I came to do, him taking the conscious decision to jump off the end of a boat and drown himself was extremely unlikely. And he had torn muscles in his sure. shoulder sure. when his body was found, which seemed to indicate he was hanging that on. he was hanging on. So I rule out myself suicide. And therefore, it's a question of, did he fall or was he pushed? I think that, don't forget some of the murky players that were involved in this and who he was about to cause enormous loss, uh, including mafia 
connections. Uh, I think there's a good case for saying that there were enough people with a cause to murder him uh, that he may have been murdered. Uh, because the thing about Maxwell is he would have sung like a canary if he'd ended up in courts. Yeah, with uh, tears and an onion. It would have been an onion and a tear, and they made me do it. Yes. The British security services made me do it. The Israeli security services made me do it. I was doing it for them, Your Honour. That's how he would have conducted it. So did one of these services for whom he was working or one of these gangs with which he was associated in this swamp think, actually, we've lost a lot of money, but we could lose much more, including our liberty, if he lives to tell the tale, even to invent a tale. So he could have fallen. He was a very fat man, very drunk. It was a moving object, a yacht at sea, although conditions were calm. Yeah, there was a fallen. swell. Yeah. Yeah, relatively calm. I mean, yeah. we're not talking a hurricane or no. anything. No. And it could be that he went out to, as he did, miturate over the side of the boat or that someone boarded the boat on a dinghy off the Canary Islands and made sure that Robert Maxwell went to a watery grave. Uh, I'm with Ghislaine Maxwell in that I lean towards the murder. Now, I had uh, a, a brutal um, introduction uh, to Robert Maxwell, but so did you. Tell us about that. It was 1975, the Scottish Daily News, which was a workers' cooperative which had sprung from the Daily Express, the Scottish Daily Express, which had made everybody redundant and retreated to Manchester. And the workers decided to, that we take over the building, they would take over the presses and they would launch a newspaper called... The leader of that co-op is still alive, by the way, and I spoke to him quite is recently. Alistair Mackey. Alistair Mackey, still alive. Is he? Very, very old, yeah. Yeah. Alistair was the, the figurehead of the Workers' Cooperative Committee. And the deal was with the government. Um, Tony Benn was the minister in charge that I think if they could raise half the money, the government would go pound for pound and they would be able to take over the building and start their newspaper. Well, they were 100,000 odd short with the deadline just days before the whole thing would have fallen apart and they couldn't have moved into the building. So a delegation went to Headington Hill Hall, which was the Mas Maxwell home. Uh, the best council house in the country is Maxwell. Yeah, it was a, a stately home that stately was owned by home. the council. It owned by the council, which he got for a peppercorn yeah. in exchange for, for doing up. So a delegation, we went to Headington Hill Hall and to persuade Maxwell to put up the £110,000. And my memory of that is tea and coffee were served in this beautiful tea set, except Maxwell's cup was twice the size of anybody else's. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the kind of guy he was. And, of course, once he put up the money, his megalomania 
kicked in. This would have been his first newspaper venture. It was his first newspaper venture. And, of course, there was a resistance to him and his methods. He was there all the time. He was in the canteen serving chips. He was hectoring people over the, the intercom, the tannoy, and was generally just messing the whole venture up, coming down onto the editorial. Putting himself in the paper? Uh, putting himself in the paper, Picture putting his, his arm name. around journalists, telling them what they should write. Yeah. I, I, I can't describe what it was like. And every night, presumably when he had a drink in him, he would boom over the tannoy about the the, 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 the cretins, the fools, the, the people who were opposing his methods, methods and his salvation of the newspaper. And, of course, he didn't come up. But the majority of the workforce believed that he would take it over and their jobs would be secure. But, of course, he didn't. He just disappeared. And, and it all came crashing down. It all came crashing down. Again, another early warning that should have been heeded. Because, of course, when he took over the mirror, he did exactly the same thing. His own face and his own name was in the paper every day. Yeah. And whilst he was pledging uh, editorial freedom uh, to the people working for him, that, was, that would make a horse laugh. Yeah, and it was, only, it was only several years after, as you mentioned earlier, he had been slaughtered by, I think it was then called the Board of Trade, yeah. over the Lisco deal with Pergamon. Yeah. He was not a fit, proper person to exercise stewardship of a public company. That was only a few company. years before, exactly. because that, that finding would be about 68, 69. Yeah. And the Daily News was 75. 75, yeah. And was it your pension from the Express that he nicked? No, no, no. It wasn't. That, that was later, because he bought... You know, he bought everything, didn't he? He was, he was like a magpie. I mean, he, he bought football teams. He, bought, he had tried to buy Manchester United. He had Derby County. He Derby had County, Oxford. Oxford United, which Ghislaine was in charge of. Yeah, exactly. A student. She was still a student yeah. at the time. He made her uh, the person to run Oxford, Oxford United, United football yeah. team. I mean, he collected. He had Macmillan publishers, didn't he? Yeah. He bought newspapers. He bought companies. McDonald's Futura, who published my first book, and then went bankrupt as the book was still coming off the press, <laughs> leaving <laughs> leaving me in a difficult situation. Yeah. No, when he took over the New York Daily News, the negotiations went on in the Macmillan building in, in New York because he had to negotiate with the unions unsuccessfully, really. He wanted to slash everything, of course. Of course, the unions were heavily mob-infiltrated. Oh, totally mob. Because at one stage, the American union leader went out for a splendid dinner with Maxwell's uh, factotums, uh, he, who plied, them, pl plied the union guys with the best of food and drink. And uh, they then said, so what do you think? And the union leader allegedly said, tell that fat F-U-C-K boss of yours that if he keeps insisting on the demands that he's making of us, he'll end up sleeping with the fishes in the East River. Yeah, with his throat slit. With his throat slit. I, I omitted that bloodthirsty <laughs> aspect. Uh, yeah, I think they said it. that actually to his face. Yeah, yeah. 
To Maxwell's face. To Maxwell's face, yeah. After he was uh, a bully. Liar. Many bullies. Cheat. Are cowards. Was he a coward? That would go to the suicide uh, theory. I doubt if he was a coward. He may have been one of those bullies that was not, in fact, a coward. And if you think about it, he came from a shtetl of impoverished uh, and oppressed uh, Jewish stock in Central Europe. And we're still talking about him in 2021. I mean, I see so much of Bob Maxwell in her. I see, even facially, I can see him. And in her great Yiddish word, chutzpah, she definitely learned that at her father's feet. But the crimes that she and Epstein committed will probably still be being talked about many decades uh, hence. So this Maxwell bloodline has got quite some way to run, I think. Finally, George, we've gone through the, the, the history of, of Robert Maxwell and the events. How do you sum the man up? He was a monster, a physical and moral monster. He was a thief. He was the biggest British thief of the 20th century. I mean, we talk about the great train robbery, which nicked three or four million quid off a train in the early 1960s. Uh, Robert Maxwell nicked a billion dollars, uh, three quarters of a million, uh, sorry, 750 odd million pounds. He was the greatest thief in Britain of the 20th century. He was a monster, a moral uh, monster, a physical monster. He reared other monsters in Ghislaine Maxwell, not to mention uh, any of the others. Uh, he lied and cheated and bullied his way through British public life. As you know, I was a member of the British Parliament myself for almost 30 years. It was legend when I was in the British Parliament that Robert Maxwell had got himself made the chairman of the select committee dealing with the catering in the House of Commons in order that he could literally steal uh, the finest wines from the House of Commons wine cellars. And he did, in fact, loot the House of Commons wine cellars of vintages uh, of, uh, of extraordinary value. Uh, there was nothing that he wouldn't steal. There was no one that he wouldn't bludgeon. Uh, but I think the big criminals in this picture are not actually Maxwell. But the people who remained silent or even complicit in his rise and rise, and above all the toffee-nosed British elite that permitted him to rampage through our public life for so long and gave him hundreds of millions of pounds of people's money in order to facilitate his schemes. So if there's a house of horrors in hell, I'm pretty sure 
he's got quite a, an important pitch in that house of horrors. I don't hate as I did during the war, but I cannot forget or forgive. And that's the story of Maxwell the Monster, as told by George Galloway and Ron Mackay. I hope you've enjoyed the series. If you have, please rate it five stars and leave a review. With thanks to BBC Radio 4's Desert Island Discs and Thames TV Archive, this was a Shellix production directed and written by Chris James and produced by Joe Brown, Simon Scott and Paul O'Doherty. <laughs>